How's it going? See you like you? Good. All right, so for those of you who don't know me, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Clay. Uh, I work on the staff team here at City Light, specifically with the college ministry. Uh, and we took a week off last week, so I'm going to just kind of give you a short recap of where we are as we trek through the book of Acts. So Acts literally just kind of stands for the Acts of the Apostles, okay? These are the guys that they hung out with Jesus for, for years during his earthly ministry. Jesus is then killed, resurrected, and then commissions them out to spread the good news of the gospel to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And so what Acts chronicles is how that started in this one little upper room and just slowly but steadily just spreads out to the ends of the earth. And this is what we've been seeing as we've we've been going story by story through the book so far. And we're at about at the half, we're not even to the halfway point yet actually. But, so what we've seen is that it starts with these big like massive mega church growth leaps where it's like 3,000 are added, then daily people are coming and then boom, 5,000 are added and then uh, persecution starts happening, and a guy gets put to death through stoning, which we'll talk a little bit about this week. Uh, and so they scatter out, but then all of a sudden these surrounding villages, these the Samaritans, these people from uh, faraway lands, they're now kind of hearing the gospel for the first time, and they're accepting. And we see this, this steady growth of the gospel, and it's uh, literally these acts that these guys are doing. It's God using his church, the Spirit showing up, doing work, and then using his church to spread his message far and wide. And what we'll see is this kind of continue today. But one of the things we also see in Acts is that this happens in some of the most unlikely ways. Because it's not the religious leaders that are kind of going all in with Jesus. They're actually the ones that are murdering people because of Jesus. So we see him going to the people like the Samaritans where uh, they're an, a hated people. The Jews generally didn't even like want to associate with them. There, there are records of them walking around the city, like de- taking, adding days to their journey just because they didn't want to walk through. Like these are not the people you go to. And then God goes to them. Uh, we, we saw this Ethiopian guy get saved uh, last time I spoke. And then today we see this guy named Saul. And we see his interaction with the church. Now, if you remember him, uh, a couple, last two weeks ago, I talked about him. Uh, he was the guy who was um, holding the coats of the disciples while they stoned Stephen. So, like, if we, we, we can hear that and not kind of picture what's actually going on there and how brutal of a scene this is. So he's holding the coats and visually watching as men throw rocks at another human until he stops breathing. Like nodding in approval as they just throw rock after rock till this murder is complete. This is a brutal man. Like I, we don't have many pictures of that in our society of, of standing by and watching that. And that, that when you, you actually kind of picture what's going on there, it just kind of curls, curdles your stomach. It just kind of makes you sick. And yet what we see is that even a guy like Saul is not off limits to the power of God. We see that God sees him, sees this enemy, and looks at him and just says, I want him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use him. And so let's start off as we see the first point today. We in Acts chapter 9, is that God chooses his people. So chapter 9, starting in verse 1, But Saul 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So it's not like he made this, he turned this corner and now Jesus is saying, I want him for my team. He is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if they found any belonging to the way, that's kind of the, the first title Christianity had, those of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men were traveling with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So they saw, they saw the light, but they, and they heard something, but they didn't hear what was going on. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he was blinded. And they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Saul, this enemy of the gospel, is on his way to a city, it was a larger city known as Damascus, with a letter saying, if, if I find anybody that belongs to this, this new uprising that claims Jesus rose from the dead, he had legal permission to tie them up, bring them back to Jerusalem, and throw them in jail. Like, this guy is on his way to do some, har- some harm. He is convinced that if, if I, it is my duty as a good disciple, a Pharisee, one of the, most, the highest religious leaders, what we know about some other information about him is that he's actually studying under one of like the top dogs. So he's the next big thing. And he is convinced that he's going to be able to stomp this thing out. Like if I put my mind to it, if I start throwing people in jail, if I start nodding and holding coats while people throw rocks, I'm, I'm going to shut this thing down. And it's at that point that Jesus literally stops him in his tracks and just says, stop. Enough. You're done. Why are you persecuting me? Now, when we hear that, just because it has a question mark, that doesn't mean it's a question, right? There's a lot of questions we can ask that aren't really questions based on tone, right? Jesus isn't wondering, why, why are you doing this, Paul? Tell me about it. Like, no, uh, the tone here is, why are you persecuting me? What do you have to say for yourself? What, what's going on here? Right? These are not questions you answer. And Paul, I assume in a puddle on the ground here, responds with the question, uh, who, who are you? Jesus doesn't let him off the hook and says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Right? He doesn't let him go. He just like There's no wiggling out of that one. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now notice here, this is just kind of a, a brief sidebar, but notice here how Jesus talks about his church. So the text says that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the church. But Jesus shows up and says, you're persecuting me. Whatever you're doing to them, any kind of harm that is befalling his church, he places on himself. And what's true for them here is also true for us. Christian, if you're in the room, any harm, any persecution... Any pain that's coming your way, Jesus identifies with that. 
Jesus brings that on himself. Jesus feels what you're feeling. He enters into that space with you. Jesus identifies with you. There's nothing that you are going through alone. Jesus identifies with his church. Um, He identifies with the hurts and pains of his people. And yet, feeling all the weight that these disciples are, mourning the loss of Stephen, mourning the danger they're in because of Saul, having to leave their homes and spread out, even with all that, Jesus, feeling the weight of that, sees this man wreaking havoc on his church, an enemy of Jesus, like literally fighting Jesus, killing the people that follow Jesus, and according to his love and good pleasure, breaks into this man's life. He just kind of shows up and, uh, and saw him in his rebellion, an enemy of the kingdom, and just says, I'm going to redeem him. I'm going to break in. I'm going to appear to him. I'm going to use this guy in profound ways. Now, we tend to think typically that we have less in common with Paul or Saul than we do in common with him. Like if I think about like my, I, I don't have this kind of Damascus Road experience. And we, we hear people talk about that all the time, right? Like I want this Damascus Road experience. I just, I just want Jesus to kind of enter into my, my space in this way. I want to be uh, on my way to work and have Jesus just kind of pop in the car, right? I, I mean, in that situation, I could do without the blinding piece because that could be dangerous. But I, I just want him to just kind of show up and just start talking. Like, that's what I want. I want him to kick open the door of my room at night and just start being like, hey, I'm here, let's go. Let, let's talk, let's chat. But... Uh, I just kind of want to skip the blinding part, seriously, though. But I would argue that, this story, that we actually have more in common with the story of Saul than we, have, than we give credit for. Because while our story, if you're a Christian in the room, while your story may not be as spectacular as Saul's, it is just as much miraculous as Saul's. What we know from the scriptures is that by nature and by choice, we are naturally rebellious against the cross. Like, this is our default state. We are like spiritual entrepreneurs, right? I want to be my own boss. I want, to, I want to get my own schedule. I want to set my own agenda. I want to pick my own goals. I want to do what I want to do, right? So that may well work well with business, but that works terrible with relationships. And when God sets forth this plan of how I want to redeem and fix and create this world, and we say, yeah, I'm not in for that. I want to go do my own thing. I want to set up my kingdom. I've got a picture of the way I think it should go, and I don't care what your plan is. I want mine. We are committing rebellion against the creator God. When we use people, when we uh, use God, God's good gifts in ways they're not meant to be, we are rebelling against the creator of the universe, and that fractures relationships. I cannot go to my wife and say, you know what, I don't really care what you're interested in, I'm going to go do what I want to do, and expect there to not be repercussions relationally. We have broken our relationship with God, and the good news here is that we are just like Saul. It may not seem like good news, but, but if, if God can do this to a guy like Saul, the story is that he can then do this with people like us. And we don't seem to identify, but but we are just as lost and far off as Saul is. Now, there's, there's two different ends of the spectrum here, and I, what I love about his example is he's both of them. 
So you've got this one area of people that have this change to come to Christ, and it's from their rebellion. So they are an enemy. They do not have any care for what God is doing. I'm going to go do what I want, and they're just open with that. And some of you were in or are in that boat where, like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Paul's here. He's just killing Christians, right? I'm doing what I think is right. And God intervenes into that guy's life. And then there's this other side where it's uh, people that uh, maybe grew up in the church. We think we're pretty good because we've got this list of things that we don't do. Well, Paul ends up matching that and then up in the ante. Like what we hear here is that he was born into the right family, which is something like we can't even control. Born in the right family, had the right upbringing, followed the right rules since he was born, studying under the most famous guy, the next big thing in Judaism. Like he is the stuff right now. And that is the very thing that made him an enemy of the cross. And so whether you're on this side of rebellion or or this side of religiosity, both of these are the kinds of people that God steps in to save. And so if God's going to step into a guy like Saul, this is the type of God that we serve. And he's the type of God that steps into um, our lives. The uh, scripture says, Rich just read it earlier, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. It may have not been as spectacular in sight as Saul's, but it is just as miraculous and just as supernatural as what happened on this Damascus road. Now, this can be difficult at times because some of you may have like a background like mine where I, I literally cannot think of a time where I didn't believe Jesus was Lord over all of creation. Like, I don't have that place where I can look back to, like, I don't know what I'd be looking back to, like, second grade, and uh, I was, like, some strung-out heroin addict on the playground. Like, I didn't have this background where I was in this rebellious state. I can't think of a time where I didn't just say, like, if that's what Jesus says, I want to submit to that. But what the Scripture says is true, and what I know is true, is that there was a time where I was in my sin, building my own kingdom, and God graciously intervened. Was I four and it didn't have a time to work itself out? Maybe. But what we do know is that God graciously intervened, and that's a supernatural work of the Spirit. That if, if God does not intervene in my life, I am no different than Saul. Maybe I'd be killing Christians. Maybe you wouldn't want to see my face in here. Or maybe I would have figured out a way to mitigate that and hide that, and then my internal state is simply just the very same as his. I don't know, but the fact that I am in submission to God at this moment is nothing but the supernatural work of God in my life. If you are in the room, you are in submission to Christ, you believe him as your Lord and Savior, that is because of a supernatural work of God in your life. He saw you in your sin and chose to intervene. God chooses his people. Now, after identifying with this church, Jesus tells Saul to rise and enter the city, and then you'll be told what to do. This was actually the piece that I always, that I always get kind of tripped up on. Like, wait, Jesus, weren't you like, I don't know, literally right there in front of him? Couldn't you have told him at the time? Like, why did you just, why did you make him go to the city and then wait, what was it, three days? Like, not eating and drinking? Like, what, what is going on there? 
why didn't Jesus just tell him there? I think, it's, I think what we see in the scripture is that it's because God chooses to spread his name through the witness of his people. Remember, we, we have the big theme of Acts 1-8 from the start. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Jesus chooses to work through his church as witnesses. That is the means by which the gospel is going to spread. So God, the second point tonight is God works through his people. We'll see this Acts 9, starting in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord sent him a vision. Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And the house of Judas took and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying and he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about this man. And how much evil he's done to you and your saints, uh, to your saints in Jerusalem. And that, and that here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So like, Ananias, he walks in, to, Ananias gets this vision. And he, and he responds, which is kind of how I would expect to respond. Like, oh, the Christian killer. Go find him? Okay, right? Uh, I, I've heard the stories about him, and I know he literally has a piece of paper with my name on it. Like, it's, if, go to Damascus, find Ananias, go throw him in prison. Like, this is, you, you, that guy, you want me to go over there? And then Jesus says, uh, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the king of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Jesus, God, uses and works through his people. He sent him, I'm a, I, he, I think he sent him to Damascus so that Ananias could be the one that went to him. Because the, what God chooses to do, what we see all throughout the book of Acts, is he chooses to send his followers to go proclaim the good news. He chooses to send his followers. We saw this, uh, the story before this is, is Philip being sent to the Ethiopian eunuch. He goes, Philip is led by the Spirit out there. He says, there's the guy, go over that. He goes over the cart. He's like, what are you doing? And the guy's like, I'm reading Isaiah. You want to come up and explain it to me? Okay, great. The Spirit just led him into that. And then Philip preached the gospel and the guy is saved. Here we have Saul being sent to Damascus, and then the Lord shows up to Ananias. He's like, Ananias, go find Saul. Go lay hands on him. Pray for him. He'll receive the Spirit. He'll he'll, uh, be healed of his blindness. He finds Ananias and sends him. And then the very next story is going to be this God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius uh, that God ends up going to and finding Peter, going to him in a vision, and sending him to Cornelius. Hey, go preach the good news to Cornelius. Like this, we see this pattern over and over that God sends his people to go preach the good news. The people of God are the ordained means of God. And in some sense, like my, in my personal brain, I, it seems inefficient, right? Like Jesus could have just told him on the spot. He could just start kicking open doors every day and just show up and be like, I'm here, follow me. And then boom, it spreads all over the world, Right? Uh, this seems like a strange way for the kingdom to move forward, and it seems like 
uh, honestly a weakness of God. That he's, he's choosing to use people who are scared and timid and mess it up and don't have things perfect. Can't you just do it yourself, Lord? Um, and in some ways it seems like a weakness, and in some sense it is. Like scripture talks about this, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greek demands wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. For those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So is this kind of like a weak way for God to work? In some sense, yes. But that's the very reason why God delights. It says he delights to use this way to spread forward. Because when when he uses the weakness of men, like he's not going to the religious leaders. He's not going to the political powers and being like, let's just start this new kingdom. Let's figure it like, no, he's going to fishermen. He's going to blue-collar workers. He's going to Samaritans. He's going to just servers of the Ethiopian queen. He's finding enemies of the gospel and bringing them in. Like he, It pleases him to save those who believe through the foolishness of what he preaches because what this does is it just reveals his power, right? It, it shows that his sovereign control cannot be uh, hindered And that even with using weak men to move this ball forward, that the weakness of God cannot be stopped. That even his weakness of trying to use people doesn't stop and doesn't put an end to his sovereign control over all things. God will build his church. The religious leaders and political powers have tried to actually stop it for, for generations and what we see is that persecution is actually brings a, a weird amount of health to the people of God. That the, there's this saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That as people continually die, God's fame continues to increase. You cannot thwart God. God's going to move this thing forward, and he chooses to do it through people. This has been the story throughout the whole book of Acts. Book of Acts. Philip and the Ethiopian, Saul and Ananias, Peter and Cornelius, God is at work in people near and far and sends his people to proclaim the good news. This is what he does. And so why is this important? Uh, I think this is one of those instances where this is not just descriptive. It's not just describing what's going on, but it's prescriptive. It's something that we need to hear. So when when Luke, uh, the writer of this book, puts these down, when the Holy Spirit leads him and says, share this story, share this detail, share it in this order, as he's guided by the Spirit, he's trying to give us a message. And what we see over and over is that this story of you will be my witnesses and then the witnesses going out is not meant to stop in the book of Acts. That that is also true for us, that, that Jesus is saying to you, listen, you will be my witness. You are my chosen means to proclaim the good news to the world. Jesus is fully capable of showing up, kicking open doors, and saying, here I am. But the chosen means he has of spreading the gospel to the world is the people of God proclaiming the good news of God. This is how he works, and that is us. You are God's chosen means of revealing the gospel to the world. 
this, this hit me, this may seem kind of, well, of course, right? But, but this was profound for me, especially when I read Romans 12, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has, what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you've ever needed uh, a specific calling on your life to go, let, let this be that. Like He asks, how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to believe without hearing? How are they to hear without someone preaching? The implied answer is they won't. Like that's the way it's set up. They, they won't. If someone doesn't go, they don't hear. Now, in God's sovereignty, he's not going to let that happen. He's called people. He's going to send his people, and this is the promise of God. But yet this sits in the book of Romans as a text of, hey, this is God's chosen means. How beautiful are the feet of people that go because no one gets saved if no one goes. This is the mean God, means God has chosen. Does this seem like a weakness? Yep. But all the more will we see God's strength. Oh, how I, I mean, how I long for us to be a sent people, right? Like so many times we read this and we, we simply think about uh, Saul's conversion. God kind of showing up in a vision, sitting there, Saul getting saved. But I, I don't want us to miss the faithfulness of even Ananias. Right? God shows up and he says, go do this crazy thing. Go find this murderer because I've got plans for him. And, and Ananias faithfully goes. Like, what would happen if he didn't go? God chooses to use his people to spread his fame, his glory, and his good news to the ends of the earth. So point one, God chooses his people. Point two, God works through his people. And point three, God saves his people. We'll pick back up in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, our Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthening. So, so don't miss the symbolism in this verse. Like, I think this is the climax of all that kind of happened, is, is the scales falling from his eyes. So it's, it's said in, uh, early in verse 8 that although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. That, that these external, this external blindness is actually symbolic of the internal state of Paul, or of Saul, right? So internally, he's, he's, his eyes are open. He thinks he's seeing, but he's blind. Jesus talks about this in terms of blindness all the time, that, that if your eyes are not opened, you will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, this is the reason I told parables, is because some people will see if their eyes are open, and if they don't have eyes, they won't see. This is Paul. He's, he's blinded, his eyes are open, but he sees nothing. And though he was seeing, he thought he was seeing clearly, 
Uh, he was willing to go to extreme lengths to stop this crazy heresy of the Jesus followers. Uh, but in reality, he was spiritually blind. What we read in verse 18 is that these scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. His spiritual eyes were opened. So why is this important? This is a perfect picture of what God does. Too often we think that being a Christian is about getting your life in order, right? I came in, I got my stuff together, I've cleaned myself up, or, or I've, I know some things, I've got some right theology, or I came in and I, and I can follow these certain rules. But we are not a people that are characterized by the rules we keep, by the, by the cleanliness of our lives. We are not a people characterized by, by any of that but people who have, whose eyes have simply been opened. We've got people all over the map in terms of what sins they're fighting, in terms of their cleanliness or, me- cleans- cleanliness or messiness. But what we're united in as Christians is we're, we're a people whose eyes have been opened. So this is the miracle of God. When Jesus' disciples realized this, like this, is, this was the big thing, that our eyes have been opened to our sin, our eyes have been opened to who Jesus is, our eyes have been opened to how Jesus deals with that. Like, if you want to know what it means, like, what does it mean that our eyes are opened? It's that we see our need for Jesus. Like, I, I, there, and I've been in so many conversations, uh, my, my wife and I have this, this friend of ours, that when my wife first got sh- saved, uh, she, she, her eyes were open to the gospel, she was just in awe of it, and she kept preaching it to her friend, and her friend would literally just say, I just don't see it. I don't get what you're talking about. It doesn't make sense to me. This went on for 11 years. And so one day, she's sitting down with my wife, and she just goes, yeah, I, I get it now. I just, I don't know. I don't know what I did. I don't know what changed, but I just, I saw it. It clicked. It made sense to me. What happened in that moment is that her eyes were opened. She didn't clean herself up. She didn't reason her way through it. She didn't hear a good argument from my wife. It wasn't even in a conversation with my wife. She just kind of informed her, like, oh, yeah, the other day, it just clicked for me. Okay, great. Her eyes were opened. This is something that God does supernaturally. He opens our eyes to our sin and to our need for a savior. This is the true miracle of God. And Jesus even said it, like when his disciples first recognized that he was the Christ, the coming Messiah, the one that was going to come, take away the sins of the world. He says, Jesus said to them, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven, who is in heaven. It's, there's no amount of convincing that brought them into this knowledge. It's simply God intervening in lives. It's God alone that opens eyes. And so if you're in this room and you're wondering, uh, have my eyes been opened? Right? This, let, me, let me put you at ease because, honestly, that question should lead to ease in either way. Like, that shouldn't be a, a panicky question because if, if, you're the, if they haven't been opened, you're not going to care. You're, not gonna, you're honestly just not going to care whether or not your eyes have been opened. doesn't matter. I don't believe this anyway. Why would I struggle with that question about whether or not my eyes are opened? And on the other side of that, if you, if you kind of are struggling with it, that's just going to be kind of some evidence that God's working in your life. The fact that you would even care about that shows that God is pursuing you. 
That God's convicting you of sin. He's, he's revealing some of the, the reality of that into your life. Like, honestly, you're in a church. You're hearing this, these words. Like, that, isn't that proof enough that God's kind of pursuing you? And if, if that's the case, let me be the one that, that preaches this good news to you. That you, in your rebellion, as an enemy of God, setting up your own kingdom, God saw you in that is intervening in your life right now in order to bring you into himself. He died on a cross, took the punishment that was made for you, that was meant for you, to bring you into right relationship and reconciliation with God. The rightful punishment that should have been on you was placed on him so that there is now no longer any wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. This invitation is open to anybody. May God open your eyes. And if, if, if you feel like this is kind of taking on new light, if you feel like you're seeing this with new eyes, I want to invite you to, to meet us in the back. We're going to be in the back. We're always back there happy to pray with you, to pray, to process through what you're feeling, what you're dealing with. We'll be there. And you know what you can do? You can just come in the middle of a song, and everybody will think you're going to the bathroom. Right? So just kind of get, find out how to get back there. Seriously, we want to pray with you. Because what we've seen over and over with so many people in this room is that they've been coming for sometimes years and all of a sudden it clicks and their eyes are opened. All of a sudden God just finishes this work that he's been wooing them to himself and, and just, it just makes sense. Oh, that we would see this happen. Please come back and visit with us. And now let me finish with Believer in the Room. We can't miss this. You are God's chosen means of revealing the gospel to the world. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, and that is the means that gets it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You are God's chosen means of doing this. Uh, God is at work. I say this each week, and you're probably sick of me saying this, but God's at work all around you. He's at work with the person you're sitting next to in class that you walk by that's across the hall, like a co-worker. Like God's at work around you and inviting you into this. You're his means for revealing the gospel to them. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for this word. I thank you for intervening into Saul's life, that, that you uh, rescued him and turned him into a great minister of you, and that, for the hope that that gives each of us, that in our, uh, our rebellion and in our weakness and in our insecurities, that, that none of these outdo your plan for the gospel to move forth. That you don't need our, our brilliant minds or our creative arguments. You don't need our charismatic personalities. You just need our faithfulness to show up and watch you do the work because, because as much as we are the liability, uh, you have full sovereign control over your world. You are the one that is going to make sure that this, this gospel moves forth that you promise that, that the gates of hell will not overcome it, that this will move forward and cannot be stopped. And so let us be a people that walk in that confidence, 
knowing that you have brought us in close and you have sent us out on mission. Uh, Lord, I ask that you continue to work and move through this, this, these people here, these college students, uh, to change it for generations and years to come. And so I ask this in your beautiful name. Amen.